24 of God's Own Scale. I'm your host, Sean Clark, and today I have an interview for you with Leon Pengilly of Pendracken Miniatures, a one-stop shop for all of your 10 mil gaming needs, plus a few other bits and pieces as well. I hope you're all keeping well as ever. Uh, the Christmas season is upon us, and in whatever form you celebrate it, I hope you have a great time. Don't get too stressed. Don't eat or drink too much. Just try and enjoy it the best you can in these strange times. There is one more show actually coming up uh, before Christmas, which will be out on Christmas Eve, where I will be joined by three special guests, all of whom have been onto the show before. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll have a bit of fun and merriment to warm the cockles of the coldest of Wargamers' hearts. Not much in the news in the hobby other than information about the cancellation of a show in March 2021. It's a very sad one for me. This is it's the Alan Welsh show or WIMS, WMMS show um, in the West Midlands. It's always been a great show and one I've been attending for nearly 30 years, as long as it's been in the hobby, really. So it's sad to hear it won't be running next year, but obviously understandable. In the circumstances. This does leave one wondering where Salute sits as uh, it only comes a couple of weeks or so later in the calendar I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's scheduled for the 10th of April 2021. Certainly a situation to keep an eye on. I'm not aware of any official word from the organisers. Uh, I think the last update was around about 11 weeks ago. Um, and obviously things have moved on a little bit since then. I have to say, personally, I'm struggling to see the show going ahead, knowing the crowds that get into Excel, um, unless there's a strict limit on the number who attend and the number of traders, which obviously being hosted in the Excel Centre most likely wouldn't make it financially viable. So... Uh, I, I, I very much doubt uh, we'll be seeing it, but let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's not beat this as a show of positivity. Let's uh, be positive and cross everything and hope that uh, the largest one day show in the UK goes ahead and it could be a, a real celebration of the opening of the hobby uh, in the wide sense once again. Hobby update and a bit of a monologue coming at the end of the show, so please keep listening uh, once the interview's done, but you're not here to listen to my voice. Oh, no. You're here for the interview. So, enough of my waffling on. Let's talk about six. Uh, sorry, ten. Mademoiselle from Okay, uh, welcome to God's Own Scale, episode 24, and this is 
uh, an episode in which I'm talking to uh, one of the figureheads of the industry, one of the most visible people on the show scene. If anybody can remember Wargame shows, you might have to go and ask your dad what they were, but uh, certainly one of the most visible and uh, one of the most engaging people, certainly on uh, the company's forum, uh, Pendracken Forum. I've got Mr. Leon Pengilly with me. Hi, Leon. How are you? I'm very good, Sean. How are you? I'm absolutely marvellous, and I'm always, I always breathe a sigh of relief at this point when the interview is actually underway and we haven't hit any technical issues. <laughs> well, think, think ahead of the war games industry. I think that's an issue straight away. <laughs> well, you must be one of the hardy, hardest working uh, companies on the show scene because you go to many shows throughout the year. We do, yeah. We're doing a few less than we used to. It's about 15, I think, we've got now on the list. When, obviously, when we're allowed to go to shows. Yeah. Um, but we've we pared it down in recent years just because the kind of time involved in uh, packing vans and, and traveling the country and hotels and whatnot, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't viable on some of the smaller ones these days. Yeah, because you, you're up in the, the northeast, aren't you? Yeah, we're up here in Middlesbrough, so... It's a shame because you always want to support the shows, but it's difficult at the same time to kind of balance it up in a business sense and make sure that you're you're always kind of covering the costs at least. Yeah, of course. I probably make between six and ten shows a year, and I don't think there's many of those that you're not at. The, the Pendracken stand is always one that me and a couple of my friends always uh, hover around and dream up new projects on the spot and think. No, it's, is it's that like, you loitering around, is it? Yes, mate, yeah. Well, <laughs> you seem to have quite a few loiterers, I don't know <laughs> if yeah. you've noticed, but it's it's one of those where you, you see uh, a range, for example, your um, uh, the South American uh, stuff, the Peruvians and Bolivians. Yes, sort of yeah. When uh, you look at those and you think, well, I never knew that conflict existed, <laughs> but it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it existed myself until Dave came along and said, should we do this? Well, what's it going to cost us? Oh, I can convert these, and, and off he went. There you go, there you go, yeah. It's it's always a pleasure having a wander around. And you also, I don't know if you, you've done it so much recently, but you used to all, also have a very good uh, bookstall there as well, which I generally picked half a dozen books up from most shows. Yeah, we did. I was a friend of ours, and it was his kind of collection that he was, he was selling off, but... As the stand got bigger and uh, the van got heavier, uh, books unfortunately are not the lightest product to carry around the country, so we had to unfortunately kind of pass those back to him and uh, make space for a bit more metal shiny goodness. Yeah, as, as the range grows, I'm sure it's uh, you have to work out the opportunity cost of uh, yeah. what you, what you take with you and what you leave behind. Um, Leon, uh, uh, I introduce you as uh, the the figurehead of. Uh, Pendracken <laughs> miniatures and yep. a figurehead of the hobby most certainly because you you do participate in your own forum don't you, the Pendracken forum Yeah, we've got loads of, uh, I've had that for a good 10 years now I think it's been going Yeah, it's, um, it's, an, it's one of the best forums on, on the internet actually I would say um, one of the friendliest uh, Yeah, definitely informative. Yeah, It's a really nice group of people on there, uh, friendly, yeah. helpful everyone gets a warm welcome and yeah, it's very rare we see those kind of flare-ups that you get on the internet in general. Other places. Yeah, we, we, we <laughs> keep it all nice and friendly and polite yeah. and helpful, I think. We'll get into that then, I think, uh, a little bit later in the chat. But I just wonder if uh, 
to kick things off, Leanne, if we could perhaps just have a, a bit of a potted history of Pendrack and miniatures, where they first came from, when they started trading, and all those uh, sort of good things that the people like to hear about. Yeah, certainly. So we started in 1992. Um, it was my father, Dave, um, who started it. He's been a war game since the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and he'd originally started uh, working as a caster for a company called Wild Geese. And as time went by, as these things tend to evolve, uh, he went, oh, I, I think I can have a go at this myself and got himself some 10 mil ranges sculpted up. Um, and that was the starting point, the same as so many other companies. And from there, we've just grown and grown over the years. I think it must be 10 members of the family have been involved at some point now. Um, so currently, there's me and my wife. Uh, Dave, my father, still works for us. He does casting four days a week. My aunt and uncle now work for us. One is a caster, one is packaging. We've had my sister, cousin-in-law, sister-in-law. Uh, my son's come to the shows with us as well. I think at the last saloon, 2019, we had all three generations on the stand Wow! Um, that year. So it's, it's definitely been a family affair. Um, I'll try to pull us away from that. <laughs> at times because you get tired of working with family but yes yeah um, get some real people in for a change um, <laughs> so the last few years we've brought in a few other people from through regular means we actually hired people and interviewed people this year which is weird never, never had to do that before what what did you look for in an employee we we were looking for people to work on our laser machines i wanted people with 2d design knowledge so we, you know, we went out into the jobs market for that one and we had about 30 people who expressed an interest. Um, we had to discount the ones from India, Wales and Italy. So we didn't think they were quite local enough <laughs> to be travelling to our little years. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, all three of them said, oh, well, we'll just move. We'll move there. Uh, really? Yeah. But uh, in the end, we found two, two young lads, a bit of young blood in the unit. Um, they've come in and yeah, they've been a great addition. And are they gamers? Kind of, yeah. One of them, uh, but they're both kind of D&D more than uh, wargaming. One of them right. dabbled in 40k in the past, but uh, yeah, they're more D&D uh, gamers. But we're really looking for the, the skills rather than the knowledge of the product. Yes, yeah. So um, it, was, it was your dad then that uh, first picked up the company and, and got it underway. So, did uh, did they buy out Wild Geese then? Because I do remember adverts for, uh, for that company back in the day in the magazines. No, it, it's it was kind of a slow evolution, I think, to begin with, where he was casting the Wild Geese ranges whilst also getting his own ten mil ranges sculpted. Um, he'd always quite like ten mil himself. He'd seen uh, minifigs and, and AIM, I think it was in America at the time who'd done the 10 mil stuff. And he quite liked the, the visual aesthetic of it. Um, it was a, a nice kind of um, filler between the 15 and the 6. So slightly more detailed than the 6 is, a bit cheaper than the 15s. Uh, and it fitted quite nice with engaged stuff you know, from the railway market. So he, he kind of just slowly built, I think, I think I just put this out on our social media recently. It was the first wages were Malburians, World War Two British, and there was another one that's completely escaped me. Um, but it, it just started there, and then from then we, we bought up some fantasy ranges, 
brought on sculptors and started working on World War Two, and then it just kind of went off. Dave's very much a war games magpie. Whatever shiny in his eye line, he goes off and does that. Um, so the range is kind of just a bit of this and a bit of that, and, and suddenly off you go and you're you're aware then. Yeah, yeah. So the sculpting then for Pendragon has that always been outsourced? It's never anybody in house do that. No, we've never had anyone full time in house, uh, and anyone, never anybody that worked in the business who had that skill set. Um, Dave's quite good at conversions. He's a reasonable sculptor um, when he's got the time to sit and, and put the effort in. But generally, we've, we've always outsourced it. It's just easier to to do that with a professional and kind of go right. Here's the brief. This is what we want, and, and away they go. Uh, and over the years, we've got a, a cracking team of sculptors now. Um, we've really kind of fine-tuned and was good at what things and um, they produce fantastic work. And have Pendragon always had that um, presence at war game shows uh, or is that a, a more modern thing? We've always had a presence. Dave, Dave's first show stand was a six-foot table where he had three foot of it and the other three foot was Bacchus. Wow. Uh, and we used to go to shows together. And share a space until the two companies kind of got big enough on their own, and, and off they went and, and had their own stands. Oh, was that back in the day when Bacchus were just doing the scenery, or had they started their own figure ranges at that point? I think he had his ranges at that point. The, the companies started almost at the same time. I think Bacchus predates us by about six months, right? Um, and, and I think Pete's journey into the business was quite similar. He was doing Ah, oh, I want to get the name right now. Minuteman, I believe it was a company called Minuteman Miniatures. Right. Uh, and quite a similar evolution. He started doing that and then progressed to doing his own ranges. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it's it's it just gets bigger and bigger. And I suppose it really it took off about 2010. Uh, that's when I took over full time. Um, and I'd, I'd taken a look at the show stand and it wasn't really up to the standard of the other stands on the circuit. Yeah. If that makes sense. It was kind of still, it was on the table. It was just stock laid out with one or two grids. Uh, um, so that was one of the first things I did was completely overhaul that and make it into a real it's a shop. You come out, you put it out, it's a shop front, it's shelving, there's displays, it's all easy to find. And then I drive people mad by completely overhauling it every couple of years when I decide I don't like it anymore. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it always appears a very professional setup that you've got there with um, the the stand. You've got the little walk around island thing and uh, all the all the uh, figures laid out and a proper till, and it's not just uh, rolls of notes in your back pocket by the looks of it. <laughs> Magic beans and brown paper bags. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's what the war games industry ran on for many years, to be honest. Um, but you certainly. Uh, Picked it up a notch with the the professionalism of of the stand that you you've got there, and that the huge variety that you have on offer, not just the figures, but the all the extra bits like the paints and the bases. And yeah, I think you have to these days. It's it's, it's one of the things of, of smaller scales, and I, I suppose Peter Bacchus will have a similar experience that you have to go you have to go above and beyond what maybe the 28 mil companies have to do because you have to kind of over exaggerate stick the elbows out and go we are here come and have a look at what we've got um, so you've got to make yourself look as, as professional and attractive and, and 
peak the curiosity of people wandering by, you go, oh, what's that over there? Let's go and have a little, a little look. And that's always quite satisfying when people come into the stand and have a look at the displays. Oh, look at these, they're tiny, aren't they? Yes, they're, they're small, but <laughs> no, I don't think hates that as well. Oh, I can't paint these. You can, you just, you know, you just approach it slightly differently and you can whiz through it and look how many you can get through in a night and look how many you can get on the table. And it's just a, it's, it's finding the right vehicle to sell anything, isn't it? That's all sales ever is. It's finding find the best way to present a product and show people how they can use that product. Well, I've always said that if I had to make a living through selling things, I'd be living in a cardboard box beneath a bridge. Uh, I don't think I could <laughs> uh, sell a bean to anybody, to be honest. But um, you've struck on an interesting topic there, actually, Leon, because the God's Own Scale podcast started out as a predominantly six mil podcast to uh, try and promote that scale more. Um, although I've, I've, I've talked about two mil and three mil in the past, and I was always keen to get yourself on the show um, because, for me, 10 mil falls into that same category of, of wargaming uh, scales or figure sizes that sits below 15 mil, which traditionally, 15 mil and 28 mil have traditionally dominated the market, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Whether it's in competition gaming or in the magazines or, or uh, discussion on forums. 10 mil and smaller always tends to, for me, seems to be an afterthought. So if there's an article in a magazine uh, talking out about a particular period or battle uh, and, and where to get the figures, they'll always talk about the 28 mil and the 15 mil first. And then <laughs> yes. there'll be an afterthought to say, you might want to have a look at Pendraken or you might want to look at a regular or, uh, or Bacchus. Um, and, and I want it to be that sort of that voice for the, the, the smaller scales, if you like. But um, is that something you've encountered yourself? You've been involved in the company 10 years now. Have you have you encountered that sort of scale bias, if you like? Yeah, all, all the time. Um, there's, it, it depends where you go. Some of the magazines, I know Guy at All Games and Strategy is, is really made an effort to try and get a variety of scales in there. Um, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's... If you're a magazine, you're, the majority of your user readers, your readership is going to be 28 mil oriented, so you need to provide what they're wanting to read. So sometimes it's hard to kind of diverge away from that into something that people might not find of interest. So I, I can understand it from their point of view. Um, because I've got an interesting story about that actually. We were interviewed just before the summer by uh, a national newspaper and the guy running the interview came to us and he said, I'm coming to you specifically because I want to not focus on the usual 28-year-old company, the Nottingham lead belt. I want to move away from that and focus on something different. So, oh, excellent, okay. So I gave about half an hour interview. Said, yep, the article will be done in a couple of weeks' time. Didn't see it for a long time. And then when I finally saw it, uh, completely didn't feature at all. It was entirely focused on a 28-year-old company in Nottingham. And you think, all right, that's widely... Why didn't we? Why didn't we feature? What did we do wrong there? So it it does. It's just one of those things that you you think, oh well, that's just the way it is, and you just adapt to that. I mean, that that infuriates me, Leon. To be honest, um, it seems as though somebody sought you out because you're away from the the Nottingham lead belt area. So 
I don't know if that was an editorial decision taken above his above his level where they said, no, we need to focus on you know this company because they're bigger and you know, they've got a, more visibility. I don't know, but uh, it was. It, it, it's it's just a bit yeah, it's a bit frustrating. Yeah, I, I can I can well imagine. So, um, obviously, I run this podcast because I enjoy the smaller scales, and I, I play all scales actually. But I'm very aware as a consumer of the product and a follower of, of the hobby industry that there is this bias away from uh, the smaller scales, and it it really gets me. But you're you're the man making the money from. Uh, the industry, making a living uh, from the industry and putting those hours in on the road to get to these shows to provide uh, the service uh, to the customer so they can see your product at the shows. Um, because for me, it's always better. I always prefer buying figures at shows as opposed to ordering online because I can interact with the the, the owners of the company and support their efforts to get out. But how have you found, other than this year, which is obviously a unique situation, uh, and we'll get onto that shortly, but how have you found the show scene over, over the last 10 years? I know you said you've cut down on the number of shows, but do you see it as a, a purely business opportunity to sell more figures? Is it about networking, spreading the word? What? How do you view the show scene at the moment? It's a bit of a mix. Um we don't approach it as purely just a business thing, so I, I don't think it's it's too hard. There's no real metrics that you can pull from that other than on the day sales, and that's not really an accurate metric anyway. So we go along because it's nice to get out of the unit, personally. It's nice yeah, to just go and meet people nice. and yeah. not, not talk to the same faces at work. Especially if you're working with your family all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, go meet people and have a chat, and, and you know, really friendly with all our customers, and it's nice to have a catch up with them and see how they're getting on and what they're up to and what they're doing. Not even war games oriented either, just as the family and, and you know, just have a catch up. Really, it's kind of a, a little group of friends that you you only get to see once every three or six months, so that's nice. And, and then the, the business aspect of it does come into play. So it's we just don't want to go to events where we're losing money. That, that does have to factor in. And, and like I say, it is a shame when you have to stop attending an event. Um, but it's, it's difficult. There's got to be a weighing up on the financial side of it. Economics has got to come into it, hasn't it? It does. And it's something you hear quite often among traders on the circuit. It's, if it costs them £200 to get there and they take £200 to go, well, at least I've covered my costs. And it's, it's not quite that simple. I, I always get a bit surprised by that because. Unless your product costs nothing to produce, you haven't covered your costs. Um, there's an inherent cost of, of production in there. So, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to weigh up. But we we got the ones where we enjoy it, we're well organised, there's reasonable sales we made on the back of it, and yeah, it's a good showcase for, for the product. And do you think there's been a change or, or over the last ten years? Um, towards whether people are, are going to show us more as shopping experiences or they're just going to look in the shop window, as it were, and then contemplate a, a purchase further down the line? Hmm. It's hard to judge. Um, we've seen sales fairly consistent yeah. 
um, across those 10 years at most of the events we attend. Um, the, the odd ones where the sales have dipped a bit or the visitors have gone, the visitor numbers have dropped as well. They're the ones that we've kind of dropped from our schedule. But then we bring new ones on every now and then as a, as a bit of an experiment. Let's try this one. And sometimes that works. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. We, we did the tabletop live one in, in London uh, at um, in Central Palace, wasn't it? Yes. And that really wasn't it. Wasn't a war game show. Uh, it was a bit of a misselling on on their part. So we gave that one year and we didn't go back. Yeah. And then other ones you, you give them a shot and it's fantastic and you're like, yeah, we'll, we'll come back here. Uh, but it needs to be a friendly affair. I think that all the shows have had to adapt a little bit because it's gone beyond a traditional kind of formula for a show. And you have a hall and you get some tables and now it's just let's tell some friends uh, in the 80s and 90s and people just rock up. Word of mouth did the work for you. And I think there's got to be a lot more uh, a lot more focus on why your event is important to attend. Yes. Why should people come along? What have you got that other shows don't? And actually, I've just I've just written a small article about this. I'm, I'm looking to put in more game soldier strategy. Right. Uh, but it's it's almost like a USP, a unique selling point for each show. They need to go like, what is it? So for Salute, that's easy. It's the biggest event in the UK. Um, something like Hammerhead, the drop participation games. That's their focus and their drive. Um, back in York, it's the biggest kind of the, the starter to the season. It's a big event at the beginning of the year. All those new projects, get in there, stock up, get you get the stuff you need. So it's really just finding that gap, I think, for a lot of shows. Um, we we went our own event in November, and for, for hours we've gone with the proximity to Christmas, so it's Christmas shopping, and we also do free entry, so it's not costing people to attend. Is that battleground? Is it? Or? It is, yeah. yeah. So we we push those two as our kind, of, our reasons to be there, and you hope that people find that enough of a draw to, to come along and, and support the traders and play the games and and everything else that we have going on. So I think shows just need to maybe have a look at that. I think why why do we exist and what is it that we're doing? Yeah, I I, I certainly think ten. 20 years ago even, or 30, as long as I've been going to shows, that at the time that there seemed to be a show nearly every week that you could go to somewhere in the country. But really, they were pretty much the same sort of affair. They were small local shows put on by local clubs for local people. Um, really on that amateur basis, if you like, where... The organisation might be questionable or there's not a lot of assistance for the traders getting in and out of the hall or access to the hall might be problematic, uh, as we've seen at various shows over the years. And it's something I've talked about on the show previously, that shows need to diversify a little bit and look for that USP to, to keep them going. So, as you've said, Hammerhead is a good case in point with the participation element. Uh, of course, you've got the two partisans, which, which, from a consumer perspective, are always seen as, for me, as sort of showcase events where you get some of the best games in the country. Yes, definitely. Um, those, those are the only shows that are on our please let us in list. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we've, you know, we've asked a few times, and I went and had a chat with the guys at the, the previous August one, obviously before COVID. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get in there, and I'm hoping we'll have a space for us soon. 
Yes, I, I really hope so. You, Pendragon are quite, a, for me, are quite a notable absence from uh, partisan, considering uh, the the breadth of companies that that get to attend there. But um, but then, as you said, salute as well. It's the biggest show in the country, um, and I imagine is financially. Uh, worth it because it must be because I know the cost that people pay for trade stands and the traveling and the accommodation it's got to be worth it <laughs> otherwise yeah I think it's about 1500 quid all in to attend that one so it, it's a big chunk of money but it's a big event yeah, a lot of people a lot of eyes on the product I imagine you're knackered by the end of the day oh destroyed yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the voice is gone the feet ache um, but the, these days we stay at the Premier Inn right next door at the XL, so we pack the van and you just trundle it down the little ramp at the back of the XL, and you don't even have to put it in gear. You just roll across the roundabout into the hotel, and that's it. You just go to sleep for twelve hours. But it's, it, it's worth mentioning. Obviously, it's I don't read negative on the shows because show organisers it's, it's a ridiculously difficult job. Um, and that needs to be said but the hours that go into running a show I mean, I've got 80, 90, 100 hours a year going to running Battleground in advertising on the forums and making flyers the show layouts you know, contacting traders even with the games updating the website and then the actual on the day going out the tables I mean, it's a huge undertaking um, and it does take a lot of manpower you need to if you catch one or two people from the club you need Three, four, five, six people who are there to just carry tables and to man the door. It's a huge undertaking. I, I think the point is that um, over the years, from when I first started attending shows 30 years ago, we're at that stage now where people like yourself are putting 80 or 90 hours of preparation in and it's back-breaking work. But it's it's um, it's at the, the well-run events so your back Nartex, your your partisans, hammerhead salutes. They're they're really well run events, aren't they? That have been going for years, um, and I know that there's been a, a real. Well, from my little insight into the industry, uh, and obviously there's going to be individual cases where this might differ, but um, there's been a focus more on being uh, offering the assistance to the traders, if you like, to unload and load and, and where they're going to be pitched and uh, these are some of the things I know I've wound traders up previously um, but the, they seem to be far more professionally run um, and, and therefore more pleasant experience for the traders and therefore for the, the customers that are, are turning up. Um, so this last 12 months has been a bizarre 12 months. <laughs> it's a weird time um, isn't it? It, it feels sometimes like the, the last 12 months have lasted four or five years and, and it's, it's the blink of an eye. But and, and something that we could not have foreseen where the show circuit has just been killed um, yeah. for obvious reasons. Have you missed the shows this year? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I didn't think I'd miss them that much. Cause you, when it first started, you're like, wow, this is quite nice. I get weekends at home and trundling around in this big loud van and having to carry you know, two metric tons of stock in and out of venues. Um, but after a while, you, you kind of in mid-August, September time, we thought, oh, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. I haven't had a chat with Bob Aces or Colonel Bill or the people we're friendly with. Like, oh, 
I might not get to see him for another six months. This is weird. There's a bit of a community, isn't there, around the show scene? Oh, hugely. Yeah, all, all the traders. It's it's quite nice that it's not as competitive as other industries I've been involved in. It's almost not competitive at all. It's We all just trundle along the shores. We all work together. We help each other out. I've, I've helped on board other people's trade stands. We all kind of marshal each other with our vans. If it's a tight, tight unload spot, we go around and chat with each other. We'll go out for meals. We'll go out for meals with Colonel Bill, off of war bases, eagle figures. Um, all of them, you just, you, yeah, it's a really lovely group of people, generally, on the trade circuit. So how has the COVID situation affected business over the last few months? It's been really busy. And I think from talking to a variety of people in the industry, that seems to be the, the common theme. Um, I've said it a few times now. It's the, the, the pandemic essentials were toilet roll pasta and toy soldiers. <laughs> not necessarily in that order. No, no, not necessarily. Um but yeah, ever since the, the lockdown came in, uh, I guess being a hobby industry, people are stuck at home. You know, they need something to get themselves through it. Um, so you turn to your hobbies and you, you keep yourself occupied. So sales sales have been strong. Uh, and it feels really strange at the same time because this isn't the it just feels like a bad time to be kind of doing well. Uh, I, I don't know how to phrase it properly, but it, it just feels odd. Yes. Um, when the first lockdown happened, I mean, when they announced it, me and my wife went herring off to work that night. As soon as they announced it, oh, God, we can't go to work anymore. Quick, right, let's go down. We'll grab figures, uh, new releases, paintbrushes. We'll just grab anything we can and we'll do we'll work from home, fine, sorted. And then obviously we found out that we could continue going to work, so that was completely unneeded. Um, but the first few weeks, it just felt strange being there. When you're looking at everything that was going on, the roads are empty when you're driving to work. When you're thinking, I'm, I'm not an essential service in in a traditional sense. I'm not a, you know, I don't make PPE. I don't um, provide food. I'm not a. It was just odd. <laughs> I can't find any better way of explaining that. It just felt weird. I think it's the perfect word, Leon. That um, I think everybody. During that first lockdown, felt the same. Particularly with I, I, um, I, I carried on working. the The drive to work was so much more pleasant. Yeah, I mean, the roads here were yeah, the roads were empty. Nobody on the road going to work, and that's I've never seen that before in my life. It was that well, that was one of the reasons um, that we started making the PPA back in. When was it now? Was it May? Um, because it felt useful. It felt like we could do something constructive and positive and we could actually contribute to uh, an awful time by doing something positive. Um, so that's when we shifted all the laser machines over. We, we just produced base visors for uh, about two months, I think, in the end it was. So t- tell me about that then, Leon, because I, I did see a couple of mentions that you, you'd started to work on some PPE. How, how did that happen? What were the logistics of you getting involved in doing that? Um, my wife had spotted um, a local guy that was 3D printing these um, like visor strips. It was a bit like Geordie the Forge from Star Trek. It came around over your head and you could slot, um, slot a piece of acrylic sheet over it. Um, obviously with 3D printing it was taking half an hour to an hour just to make one. So we had a little look around and we found that you could get 
sheets of plastic. Uh, and there was a company in Nottingham, whose name escapes me, it wasn't a war games company, who had put out a, a free design that you could just grab hold of. And it made these kind of three strips of plastic that you could assemble together into a headband and then a piece of A4 acetate. You could just hole punch it and that slotted on the front and it was a, a face visor. Um, so we bought a ton of material and started making those. Uh, and then we asked customers and, and friends if they could donate towards material costs just to keep the, the, the laser machines going. Um, and then they did. You know, they were overwhelmed by the, the amount of donations. I think we got £3,500 in the end. So we made 6,000 visors. Oh, wow. Which we just gave away to local GP surgeries, care homes, uh, anybody, anybody that needed them. We just, yeah, just gave them all out. Uh, and war bases up in Scotland, we, we sent some material to Martin up there and they made another thousand or so, I think. Yeah. And then at the end, we had nearly 3,000 left in donations. So we just gave that to charity. Fantastic. Well, I, I absolutely take my, my hat off to you, you there, Leon. And you, you made the comment that it felt odd to be doing well and sales were up, but you've absolutely um, contributed and paid and, and given back there, haven't you, with the, the company? So uh, well done on that, mate. Well done. Yeah, thank you. So I, I've spoke to a couple of other companies and, and they're experiencing a real upturn in demand at the moment, so much so that they're struggling to keep up with it. You've not actually closed your shopping cart, though, have you, over this period? No, we, right from the start, uh, I mean, our unit's a reasonable size, it's not huge, but we were able to section off the different workstations and the laser machines in the packaging area. Um, and we also started working opposing shifts, so we made sure that it was only ever... Um, one or two casters, only one on the laser machine, only one on the packaging. We just worked alternate shifts to keep everything going along without anybody coming in contact with anybody else. Everything was wiped down after a shift. The kettle and the fridge and things removed. Only one person allowed in the toilet. Um, which is a standard rule. I should just point that out. That there's only ever one person allowed in the toilet. <laughs> I was wondering whether to bring that up or not, but yeah, yeah. No, we all I just stand to... around. Yeah, we all just stand around the urinal and say, "Go, it's fine." Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we were able to adjust the unit uh, and the workplace to fit what, all the safety guidelines that we had, um, so we could just keep going. Uh, and it's been interesting. I mean, during the first lockdown, it, we had people in from six in the morning, and then I was there casting till about two in the morning. Um, just to just to keep things turning over and make sure that we were getting the orders out as quickly as we could. Yes. And was the turnaround affected at all, um, sort of by your access to raw materials or, or just through the general situation? Did it slow you down at all? It slowed down a touch, I'd say, but that was more due to the volume rather than any logistical issues. Um, we've been a bit fortunate in that we bought a bulk of metal back in February um, so we weren't uh, we weren't having to sit and wait on that. You know, the, the metal was there, and we could just trundle through it. It's yeah, no, no, no real supply issues. It's just get the orders out as quickly as you can whilst working on a limited um, kind of working schedule. Yeah, 
you know that's no that's good to hear so that was that was first lockdown second lockdown is it was it a similar experience that it certainly didn't feel like the same the first lockdown second lockdown no the second one maybe maybe half of the first um in terms of sales increase I mean, the first one it was almost double the previous year month on month um but then yeah we did get a slight uptick in in, in october when the second one was announced um, and that one's kind of merged into what we'd normally see with the Christmas surge as well. Um, so it's just been kind of one steady, slightly elevated stream since beginning of October now. So COVID aside, what, what is the average day as uh, operator of Pendracken Miniatures like for Mr. Leon Pengilly? What, take us through the average day of a War Games figure manufacturer. Well, ours is probably a bit strange. Is that because you live in the northeast? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's just dark all the time. Dark and cold, and the goblins come out every now and then. You have to keep it cold up north. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is. It's freezing in our unit. I should point that out. It's absolutely it's about six degrees. Really? Oh yeah, it's, it's thermal. Thermal. It's just one big breeze block cavern. Yeah, so it's, yeah it is a bit chilly. Not for me. I'm in the office. I've got a radiator. It's lovely. Oh, that's all right. As long as you're all right. <laughs> For, for all the dwarves cut, uh, chained to the machines, it gets a bit chilly for them. Um, yeah, it's a bit weird because I'm, I'm not a morning person. Uh, I have a few sleep issues. So I'm happier working at three in the morning than I am ten in the morning, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so we have casters who will start at, some of them start half seven or the start of nine. Uh, my wife's a morning person, so she's in from nine on with the staff. And then I'll kind of get there 11 midday-ish and I work through till 7, 8, 9 at night and then come home and, and do some computer work for a bit. It's probably not a very traditional 9 to 5 existence. We're very, it's an extended working day for us um, over the different shifts that different people work. Um, but we're quite flexible with the staff. We, we don't really hold them to any particular days or hours as long as they get through the work they can we can come and work up seven or two if we want. We can work nine and five. We can do ten or six. We're not really strict in that sense. That's a good or a bad thing, but everything gets <laughs> done. Perfect and, to me, mate. Yeah, the job. <laughs> the staff are happy with it, and everything gets done. That's the most important thing: is that things get done. Everything goes out the door. People get the goodies within a reasonable time frame. So, what's the process then? from receiving that order is it yourself that will check the orders that have come through um overnight or uh, yeah so it's yeah it's still me um, but generally just to run through the kind of process uh, order comes in by email we print that off staple it to the payment and then that will go out to the various departments whether it's the casting guys and different casting guys do different things as well so one does all 20th century, another one does the Polyonics and Fantasy, because there's such a crossover there, and another one does all the other ranges, and then we've got the guys on the laser machine, so the orders go to the relevant department, they put them together and bring them back over to a little table we've got set up, yeah, and then I'll check them over, uh, and add in any third-party bases, decals, paints, anything that's just off the shelf, and then they go to the packaging team, who will check them again, uh, and package them up ready for the postage to come and collect. So every order gets checked three times, in, in essence. Uh, once by the people manufacturing it, secondly by me when I 
take it around, and then thirdly, buy the packaging people before it goes out. So hopefully we don't get many errors in packing. We get a few. That's human error. With all this factor, but it, it tends to be a wheel that's missing from an artillery pack or a, a, a gun barrel or a tank turret or something that just slips through the gaps. But I think the last time I did a check, it was 0.3% error rate. That, that's pretty good, isn't it? Which, yeah, it's not too bad. I think that's one in 3,000, is it? Something like that. Yeah, that's that's. I'd say that that's a pretty uh, a good error rate. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's always the odd customer as well that will shout with a megaphone if a wheel's missing or not, and repeat and, and be cursing you to the hells and back. But uh, yeah, everyone's, everyone's pretty uh, polite. Um, and and you know, we always just send those things out. Um, sometimes we just drive them out. I've got a couple of customers. If I if I've ever missed something or the order, I'll just drive it over to them and drop it off for them. Well, I'll remember that, Leon. I'm probably I think you might be just outside my free delivery range. I'll, I'll check on that. <laughs> About 200 miles, mate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we have been doing deliveries during COVID. Um, really? Yeah, when only for aerosols, because we can't ship them. Uh, of course, yeah. So we've done, where have we been? We did a run down to Wakefield, to the road down there. And then we met, went to Metagai at Berwick and did a delivery of them for a lot of Scottish gamers. Now that is service. Well, it's quite nice to get out. Again, it's if you can't go to the shores, it's nice to get in the car and just go and have a go and see the outside world, go and see some scenery that, that isn't just the, the journey to work and back. You've got quite a few product lines, haven't you? Do you have you any idea just how many uh, sculpts or, or, or figures yeah. that you actually produce in a year? Uh, I do need to work out how many sculpts we've got. We've got 4,050 products. So I think there's probably about twelve to 15,000 sculpts in there. And I've got the number of figures that goes out each year. I've got a calculator for that one. It must be a few. <laughs> Let's just say it's, it's a few. Yeah, one or two. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh God, I couldn't even put a figure on that. It must be a couple of million, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to work that out. I'll write that down. That's some homework. We'll work out how many figures we send. Them. Get back to me, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to work out how many sculpts I've got because it's quite an interesting. I like little stats like that. How many actual sculpts have we got in the range? I'll have to try and back down. We'll find out. I, I love things like that. The um, so that that's the sort of process of the day to day. But um, whenever you come up with a new range, or um, I, I know you have a suggestions page, don't you, on the forum? Yeah, we take requests. So that's about 14 pages long now, I think. All manner of weird and wonderful stuff. And you used to have sort of a top 10, didn't you? Yeah, every year I republish the top 10. So we always try and take a few off during the course of each year. Um, and just, you know, we do take the suggestions on the board. It's important that people see progress on that, that we're not just going, oh, yeah, you own that, do you? That's nice. We do approach it and go, right, so what have people asked for? Can we fit this in? We've got that plan. Can we shoehorn that in? Yes, we can. That, the, the top 10 has led to a lot of our recent releases. Um, things like the Mongols, the Indian Mutiny, the Falcons War Range, um, some of the Napoleonic expansion was all through that. And all manner of, all manner of little odds and ends along the way. So from, say, a suggestion for 
naked Greek hoplites go to the, the top of the list. I don't know why I came up with that. That's... Yeah, why are you thinking about naked men there, Sean? <laughs> well, it, I just popped into that. I can't, I can't account for that. Um, but say, say that that's the, the most popular thing that everybody wants. What What is the turnaround from concept or, or the idea being given to you to that then going out to a sculptor and actually coming in as a production mould? And... Um, it's probably quite a longer time scale than I'd like. Uh, that's probably the that's the first thing to say. Generally, it's it's just a case of scheduling. That's that's really only the, the stumbling block because we're always we approach new ranges in kind of three it's a three tiered approach. So firstly, there'll be the suggestions, what our customers asked for, and and can we fit that in? Secondly, will be whether we've got a range that we'd like to replace. Some of our older ranges, I'm trying to replace those to bring up to current standards. And then thirdly will be market trend and what do we see, where do we see the next three to five years of wargaming going, is there something that we need to be prepared for, is there a set of rules that we ourselves or somebody else is producing that we maybe need to pay attention to. Um, so that's the, that's where the time frames get a bit bottlenecked and just trying to fit in what we need to do with what people have asked us to do with what is upcoming in the industry and trying to fit all that into a, a schedule. Yeah. But hopefully we we manage that just about. We, we put out a fair amount of product. It was a uh, thousand products over the last was it, five years. I lose track of myself these days. I mean, again, that's that's an impressive number, isn't it? And I, I know when I've spoken to manufacturers before, they they absolutely break the backs to get these ranges out and and the various poses. For example, as an example, the American, your American Civil War range and your War of Independence range are two relatively new sculpted, aren't they? Or refreshed ranges. I say that you're probably going to tell me now it's five years ago they were done or ten years ago. Yeah, ACW was about seven years ago. Yeah, when when I first saw those come out, uh, replacing the old, uh, the ACW replacing the old uh, range and then yeah. the War of Independence, I, I think both of those were uh, ranges that blew my socks off in in the uh, in the quality of the sculpt and the variety of pose that you were getting. So uh, I think you do uh, in your American Civil War range, which I've just bought a few of. Um, there's a Union advancing, and then there's a Union advancing pack two, isn't there? So, or marching or firing, you've got so you've got such a variety of sculpts just within one pose, if you like. Yeah, it was a real conscious decision that one. We've not done that with many ranges, but with that one, it was we really wanted to get that ragtag appearance. Um, so yeah, we just went to town on the, on the pauses really. Which is good because you get lots of pauses and that's a good range, but it, it, <laughs> it does lead to the demands for well, this other range could do with that same treatment. Can you just just crack on and make some more sculpts for this one as well, please? And, and I'm sure even with the variety of things that you've got in that, they'll say, "Well, it's great you've got this right-handed guy, but can you do me something left-handed <laughs> or, or something similar?" Um, and, and likewise with your American War of Independence range, when. And I forget, I do apologise, I should have done the research, but the guy who was doing the painting on those when they were first coming out. Uh, Andy Mack. Andy Mack. Yes. Goodness me. They, 
Yeah. They, yeah, so that's some of the best painting I've seen in in, in any scale. And I, I think that the thing there is it just shows off the quality of those sculpts. It does, and yeah. Um, it's difficult to think that these figures are 10 mil high when you're yeah. looking at it in the high res on a computer screen. No, definitely. I think the, the Andy Max probably responsible for the success of that range um, almost entirely. Um, obviously, the sculptor played his part, but was when Andy showed them off and, and people looked at them and, and had that same reaction that you've had. Um, that really pushed that range. Yeah, and, and for a period that's not really uh, any, any mainstream wargaming period historically, um, to see so many people jump in and go, oh, let's give this a whirl, yeah. was uh, quite a testament to yeah, both the sculpture and the painter there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, talking about the sculptors there, uh, how many sculptors do you work with I've got six at the moment. Um, so we've got Tony's our longest serving one, and he's done the bulk of the ranges, the Napoleonic, Seven Years' War, Medievals, Uncle Cushion, and you know, that kind of stuff. Um, we've got Phil Lewis that used to work at Workshop, and he does all of our fantasy, sci-fi, and the moderns and ancients. Bit of an eclectic mix there, but that's what he, he's on. <laughs> Keeps it going, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Martin and Steve both do vehicles for us. Uh, I've got Clib, Clibinarium, who does, he's not done as much recently, he's been really busy with his 28 mil work, so he did the AWIs, and the League of Augsburgs, and the late Romans, um, but he's not been able to do much for us in recent years, sadly, as his, his time's just spent with, with the big boys, and doing some big sculpts. Uh, he needs to get back to the real war game scale. He does, yeah, I'll have to go, 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 go kick him, That's, uh, yeah. If you if you're listening, get back to the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> Your fans demand it. Yes. Yeah, but he does have a real following. Doesn't just, uh, I think any any range he produces, uh, people are just drawn to it because they they know the quality of the sculpting. So so in that process, then, do you send out the requirement to the sculptor to say, um, I want ten packs of figures, I want advancing marching shooting, and then they come back to you and you is it yourself that will give it the sign off to say, yeah, that's what we're looking at? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'll put together a, a, a template for what we want. So, yeah, we want march tack two pauses, we want firing two pauses, we want command officer drum standard, uh, and it all gets listed out uh, and goes on to the sculptors. Um, and then it's a different process slightly with some. So with, with Clib, the really, AWI guy, he's, he tends to sculpt ranges that he's got a personal interest in, so we don't really have as much oversight on that, we just leave him to it because we know that he's going to do a good job. Um, uh, and with, with the other guys, yeah, we'll put together the list and then we'll either send over a bunch of reference material or what we've, we've moved towards in recent years is kind of customer involvement on that front because what I find I don't have the knowledge base for a lot of these periods, um, unfortunately. I'd, I'd love to. And, and the 10 years that I've been in the business, I've learned a hell of a lot that I never knew before. Um, uh, you know, I, I never thought I'd know the difference between a, um, a Saxon heavy cavalry gauntlet and a, a Saxon light cavalry gauntlet uh, in 1809. Didn't know there was a difference, but I do now. It might come in useful if ever you're on Mastermind. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what we found in recent years is we've got such a helpful and wide-ranging customer base now that there are often customers who 
this is their period of, of expertise, as it were. Um, and they'll come on board with us and we'll work together to put together the reference material. Um, and I think that's been a real step forward. It's meant that it, it's got more of an expert eye on what we're producing. Um, sculptors get much better guidance than I could do with books and internet searches. Um, they can get real, right, this is why this is, and that needs to be there, and this needs moving and touch that way. Um, and that's been the way that we've, we've really tried to do things recently, because uh, it produces a better range. Yeah, it sounds like a real collaborative approach as well, yeah. um, where you're getting these subject matter experts in, um, even if it's the customer who's requesting it, who may have studied that period for uh, 30 years and has got a lot to offer rather than you, as you say, just doing an image search on Google uh, for what uh, a Saxon heavy cavalryman looked like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, it's um, just... it's. I'd love to know more, and, and I, I try and absorb as much as I can on, on a day-to-day basis, but it's just impossible to have an in-depth knowledge of three, four thousand years of history. <laughs> Come on, Leon. you need to pull your finger out. <laughs> your customers demand it. <laughs> I know, um, but if there's a guy there who, as you say, has gamed that period for the last 20, 30 years, I, I can't compete with that level of knowledge. It's, it's, it would be arrogant of me to believe I could. Um, so it makes more sense to just bring that person in and go right. Let's yeah, let's work together on this. Yeah, to the, to the layman, it, it seems like an obvious choice, but um, I can imagine that there's companies out there that <laughs> that wouldn't uh, have that collaborative, uh, open-minded a- approach. Um, the it's not just figures you sell uh, and, and manufacture. Yeah. You produce rules as well. I know you've got. Uh, Blitzkrieg Commander version 4 now and Warband as well. Yes, yeah, version 4, we don't talk about version 3. That's just been, just put that, yeah, that's gone, done with yeah. version 4. Well, actually, actually, Leon, I wanted to just very briefly talk about that because I think it was tremendous how that was managed. I, I wasn't a customer at the time, I wasn't purchasing the book, but I followed the, the development of that and Again, it's something else I'll, I'll doff my virtual cap to you uh, for in that how, you, how you handled that. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank, thank you. I appreciate that. It was it was a tough time. You know, we got it wrong. And when, you, when that happens, you've got to put your hand up and say, we got it wrong. There's no point hiding away from that. So, yeah, we, we, we went away and we, we fixed it and we replaced all the books and um, Paul's been received fantastically. Uh, everyone seems happy with it. Um, we've got a, a good little team of people that we're working with now. Uh, and on the back, we've just released the Spanish Civil War supplement. You yes. saw that. Um, I have that. That's gone well. With lovely maps inside it from Henry Hyde. Yeah, it's been a beautiful book. Yeah, but Mark Fry and Rob Anderson, who's a bit of a Spanish Civil War specialist, uh, worked together on that one. Um, and they're currently working on the career war supplement as well. Oh wow! Okay. So with that range, so I'm hoping to have that hopefully first quarter of next year. Fantastic. And, and yeah, and then warband as well. But the, the rules is really something we need to get into. It's there's, there's been a long term trend now, started by workshop and, and people like that, where it's providing the full game system. I suppose I don't really like that term, but the full game system. Yeah, it's the full package, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah, here's the rules, here's the figures, here's the figures. It, it's all all in one package that you just pick it up and, and off you go. Yeah. Um, so the rules is something that we will be expanding, continuing with. I've got Cold War Commander that I'm working on at the moment. So that'll be the next one to come. Excellent. And then we'll be doing Future War Commander, which will be a sci-fi kind of version of Future War Commander 2. And then these are you know, revised versions of Pete Jones' original rules. Yeah. And then beyond that, Mark Fry's got enough ideas to keep me busy for the next 20 years um, <laughs> in, in formatting rules. Excellent. So that'll be something that's it, it's just a const, constant process. Aside from rules, uh, I think... It's. I think Pendraken can be practically a one-stop shop, can't it? For brushes, bases, paints, glues, scatter, just about anything that you need. Just about now, yeah. That was another. That was one of the first things we did actually back in 2010. Uh, before, because Pendraken always had potential as a family business that maybe hadn't been realised, but it, it it couldn't support full-time wages at that point. Um, so me and my wife started our own little side business. And Producing the bases and the brushes and the paints, just the consumables. Was that mini bits? It was, yeah. So we, we launched that just to give us a second income stream, so that we could kind of live day to day yeah. <laughs> while still putting the time into Pendraken to grow it and, uh, and expand on it. And that was it was vital. I think having all that stuff in one place uh, is really how it's just how it needs to be for a successful business. You can't, be, you can't be too reliant on one single income stream, otherwise if things dip, if things don't quite go right, you're in very murky water. Yeah. So the more the more little things that you can, you can dabble into, the more secure the business is financially. And these days with, with so many people in the business, that's a real responsibility. We have to make sure that we're, we're always moving forward and, and keeping things going. I think it's great. I think it's great for the customer as well, though, uh, Leon, because I placed a, a small order last week or the week before. And just by having a browse through the website and seeing that there's the, the MDF bases, the paints, the brushes, then I always will think, oh, I'll just have one of them and, and I'll have a pack of that and a couple of brushes or, or whatever. Having that one stop shop, so I haven't got to go to three or four different through three or four different shopping carts, yeah, I, I yeah. think it's great. And, you know, I, I, again, applaud you for that because it makes the shopping experience online so much easier. And because we've had no shows this year, I can well understand why takings are up because I've got all this money that I would have normally spent at shows. And I'll go onto your website, for instance, and say, oh, I'll, I'll have three pots of Vallejo and a couple of brushes and a bit of scatter and, um, some MDF bases, if you don't mind. So yeah. as, having that choice for the customer, for me, is, is a real boon. Yeah, I hope so. It's really it's a, it's a very conscious decision that we made uh, to do that. It'll be interesting to see when we come back to the shows how many people haven't yet mastered the art of internet ordering and, <laughs> and just rock up with sacks of loose change that they've been saving for 12 months. <laughs> I need some metal, metal men. <laughs> Yeah. Just give me some toy soldiers. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, uh, one uh, one thing that I've, I've taken advantage of over the last couple of months is the uh, bulk buy of your bases. Oh yeah, 
which uh, where you 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 I forget how many are in there, about a hundred or something. Yeah, it varies by whatever size you buy. Yeah, but I, I think that's a great idea because then I'm not paying that premium. There's a little bit of a, a discount in there, a bit of an incentive, isn't there? And I've got all the bases I need for the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that lovely, I get that lovely smell of MDF when I open the bag. Oh yeah, the the, the burnt finger smell. Yes. Um, no, that one came out by chance. Actually, we just we had a bit of space around some of the building designs that we were cutting. So we thought we might as well just reuse it. So we managed to fit in more popular base sizes to create surplus with each sort of a, a building design, and you know, and that just allows us to sell them a bit cheaper and give them a bit of a deal. Every war game is happy with a bit of a deal. I think we all are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, what's what's next for Pendraken then, Leon? We're coming to the end of 2020, which will wave off and and probably stick fingers up i imagine <laughs> uh, coming at the 31st uh it's, it's not been the greatest year but assuming and crossing fingers and touching wood and, and finding a, a four-leaf clover assuming things will return to some sort of normality uh, at some point during 2021 what's what's on the horizon for pendraken um hopefully getting to a show again and seeing people that's, yeah, away from business, it'd just be nice to see people again and have a chat and catch up. And yeah, so that's my first. Yeah, let's get that one ticked off if we can. But as far as the business goes, we've got, uh, I've got Peninsula Napoleonics coming. Uh, we run that as a, a like a not Kickstarter for our forum. Uh, it's been it's been delayed slightly with COVID stuff, but it's got some family stuff yet to take care of. But that's. Yeah, um, that's the urgent pressing one. So I'm hoping to have those done, going out to people early in the new year. Um, I've got uh, a big fantasy expansion coming up. Uh, Manner of bits and bobs, mainly monsters and things like that. Uh, I've just had a phone call with the sculptor today to set him going doing Arab Israeli for us as we expand through the modern sphere. And post-war forwards, and kind of working chronologically. If only you got a set of rules. If only you got a set of rules on the horizon that might. If only I did. I know. Yeah, I'll make it look right. Yeah, find some rules there. I'd get onto that, Leon. There's a little. Tip. That's my Christmas break. Is going to be Cold War Commander. Ah, there we go. Okay, great, great. Um, so yes, I've got Cold War Commander. That's on my little list here. A few World War Two extras, I think. I'm quite finalised my plans there. I need to revamp the Crimean War range. That's on my list. Because that's one of our older ranges now, so that needs an upgrade. That that would one that w- would perk my ears up definitely. Yeah, nice. Well, the range was uh, was uh, revamped. That would that would certainly yeah pull uh, me in. It's a, a fascinating period. Well, that one's definitely on the cards. I just need to finalise my lists on that, and I need to wait for the guy to finish doing these peninsulas for me, and then yeah. he'll be moving on to buy me more stuff. So that one's definitely on the cards, and then. I've got tons of stuff in bigger scales coming in MDF as we bought up an MDF company back in August. So I'm just working through getting all those back into production. So that's all on the go. And just stuff. There's always stuff going on. It, the really is. It's, it's just juggling, keeping all the plates in the air all the time. Yes. So, yeah, so there's always something coming. I mean, some, somebody like me is is always thinking... I'd love to work in the industry. I know it won't be as glamorous and as jet set 
as I imagine it to be. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> to, to have these uh, issues of deciding which range or, uh, you know, looking at buying up uh, MDF companies or whatever, it, it just, uh, for me, it sounds like Nirvana. I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it isn't. It's quite nice. Sure. I, I don't mind it. I quite like that aspect of it. I think that's where me and Dave work quite well because he's, he's the gamer and I'm kind of the business side of things. So I can temper his magpie tendencies. Uh, and equally, he can kind of point and go, well, maybe we need to do this, this, and this. So it's quite a nice kind of balance of the two approaches there. Yeah. You, you touched on something there, actually, uh, which I, I did mean to mention about the not Kickstarter scheme. Uh, how many of those have you ran? That is our, this one's our third. So the first one was for the Mongol range, and that went pretty well. Second one was for an 1809 expansion to cover all the uh, the Confederation nations, so Saxony, Warsaw, Hesse, and Württemberg. Sounds right. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I get lost in the polyonics. There's so much information. Um, and then on the back of that, the peninsula was the, the most requested area to, to look at next, and that one went fantastically well. We never expected it to go so to go so high. So we've got expansive ranges of British and Spanish and Portuguese and a, a few Brunswickers to make up the difference. And some wagons and some buildings and all manner of fun stuff. So how how do you run those non-Kickstarters? Obviously people are I'll be familiar with the traditional Kickstarter where you you'll make a pledge and then twelve months later you might get what you've ordered, or you might not. Depends <laughs> on how the Kickstarter's gone. Yeah, I've had a few of those. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, so, how, how would you run these uh, these non Kickstarters? Um, it's all done through our forum. So, we will put together basically a range list, the same as we do for the sculptors. This is what we're going to produce, um, and put it on the forum as a list with a, a code and a price. And we just ask people to pledge for what their purchase would be from that new range. Uh, and we then just assign a value to that and tally it up. Uh, and everybody gets some little perks. That you get free flags and you know, people discounts. We'll add in some freebies. Uh, and it gives people a voice as well because we want to finalise the range at that point so they can say, oh, I really like the range, but can you consider adding this? Can you have an extra pause of those? So a big group of people will work with us through the forum to fine-tune the range. Uh, and once we hit the target, it goes off to the sculptor and, and they work their magic. Normally, we'd, we'd hope to have it done in about six to nine months. Uh, sculpting, molding, casting, all done. And obviously, with this one, it's just delayed a bit longer because the sculptor's father was quite unwell. Uh, he's had to go and take care of him for a few months. But he's, he's, he's getting back up to full action now. and uh, We should have the first batch of figures with us in the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, for general release? Um, ready for moulding. Oh, right, okay. So, yeah, no, <laughs> not quite that fast. Um, but that will be, um, I think he's doing the kind of miscellaneous items first, uh, just because he doesn't have a full day's worth of sculpting available to him at the moment, so he's going to do things like civilians and wagon carts and mules, um, just to give us a, something to start sending out to people. So I'm very concerned that it's dragging on a bit. And... With these projects, we take a 50% deposit in advance, uh, and I don't, I don't feel comfortable sitting on people's money like that. So I want to start sending out something so at least people have got something in hand. 
um, whilst we just work through this this bit of a bit of a delay. Uh, well, I, I think there's two ways that you're differing there on the uh, between uh, the non-Kickstarter and the, the traditional Kickstarter. One that the real Kickstarter you pay in full on front, and two you never guaranteed that you're going to get what you wanted 12 months <laughs> later. Whereas um, I'm, I'm fairly confident with yourself, Leon at Pendraken, that uh, taking 50% is great. And then there's, a, there's a, a real customer confidence in the fact that it may be a couple of months late, but it, it will come. Yeah, I hope so. It's, it's just, I think it's just my personal, I just feel odd holding, holding money like that. Uh, I don't like people to keep waiting, so we'll, we'll get there. We're getting there. But I think several companies, I think, in the industry that have a loyal group of followers um, that either congregate around forums or, or will promote the the company to the high heavens at every opportunity. And I think Pendraken's one of those. And we've, we've mentioned the forum earlier on, but it really is. A, a welcoming place, isn't it? I don't think in all the time I've either contributed and posted or just lurked that I've seen any of the internet spats that might uh, yes. might affect other areas or other forums. Yeah, no, we do do. The, the guys there are fantastic. You know, they genuinely are. It's one of the, the highlights of, of the 10 years that I've been doing this that We've got that community, um, just a helpful, a genuinely helpful, polite, friendly group of people. And everybody that registers and posts a little, hi, my name is, you get 20, 10, 20, 30 responses of, hi there, what is it you're giving, how are you doing? Um, it's just a really friendly place. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend any listener, even if you, and why wouldn't you, but even if you don't game in 10 mil or, or are currently a Pendraken customer, then get over there and, and check out the forum because yeah, come over. There's a, there's a non Pendraken area. You don't have to be a Pendraken person. You can post in there. You soon will. <laughs> there's a real knowledge base on there as well. That's that's one of the other things we've got a resources section, uh, and there are some people on there who oh, it amazes me the, the things that they know um, from all areas of history. We've got a flags guy, Andrew Brentnell, who's quite the vexillologist. Get that word out. Um, and has been to you know, tiny random museums in Bavaria to find a, a six-inch shred of a flag that he's been able to uh, put against reference material and go, right, this is what it is. It, oh, it's, it's astounding. It really is. Um, but everybody's welcome. He's the one who did the large English Civil War game, I think, wasn't it? Was yes, he co-authored the, the strongest rules. Yeah, uh, with Simon Miller. And, yes, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I've obviously name checked Andrew there, but there's loads of people like that in there. So a, any question you've got, you can just post it on there, uh, and, and there'll be someone that comes along and, and helps out. I, I know I sent a schedule through to you, uh, Liam, but I'm going to drop a little curveball in. I don't normally do this, but since we're talking about the forum, I'm going to throw a little curveball at you and and take you uh, catch you off guard. Over a period of years on the forum, you ran a really interesting painting competition. We did, yes. 
uh, and I don't think it's run for a couple of years. Is that right? It hasn't, no. And um, yeah, that's a real disappointment because it's it should have run. It only hasn't because things have just got in the way. And that's all it is. Uh, I think the first year it didn't run was because we had some issues with the forum software. We were just getting loads of spammers. It was nearly 100 spammers per day we were trying to get in. Uh, so we had to turn off the registration and that kind of, it's a bit off-putting if you're coming over as a new person to try and join and the thing's turned off and you can't get in. And so I think we, we didn't do it that year. The second year, what happened the second year? It was something. Something just stopped us. Uh, and But it's, it will be back. February 2021, it will be back. Ah, there you go. That's that's what I'm looking for, Lee. There you go. You've got an exclusive there. The the reason I mention it is because I always I would I never entered because I, I never considered uh, my painting good enough. But some of the the work, the some of the entries that you get, and I'm not talking about the the people that win the categories, uh, but the whole range of entries that you get, they're just superb, aren't they? And such inspiration. That was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was all, so many people got involved as well. Um, and it really motivated people just to just to get something done. Just to go, all right, well, I've had this unit sitting here for ages. Let's get them finished. Take a picture, chuck it in. You never know. Um, and, yeah, the, the level of the standard of painting each year just grew and grew. Um, and that's actually where we got most of the painters that are painting our stuff properly for the website now. Almost all of those were recruited through the painting competition. Um, so no, that will be back February twenty one. Painting competition returns. Well, I've got a bug. I'm in the analog painting challenge this year. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's run by a guy in Canada. I think it's run for the last eleven years. Where oh right, yeah. People um, on the internet will commit to painting a certain amount over a three month period, and I've got a bag load of your Vietnam stuff. So if you are pledging and committing and, and signing uh, your soul away to say that <laughs> the uh, Pendragon Painting Competition returns in 2021, I, I shall submit an entry. In. It does indeed. I will, I will give you that guarantee there. Brilliant, brilliant. And I'll keep an eye out for your entry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going, I'm going, I'll submit it under a pseudonym. <laughs> uh, Right, uh, Leon, it's been fantastic chatting to you, mate. I've, I've really enjoyed that little peek behind the curtain. It has. It's been, yeah, been tons of fun, this. Yeah, and there's two things I ask of any first-time guest. I think I gave you a heads-up for one of them. Okay. Uh, which is about a book into the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. The first one's very easy. It's, yeah. it, it's simply... Uh, an assurance from yourself that uh, you will come back on the show at some point in the future. Whenever you'll have me. Now that I've got to grips with all this technological malarkey, yeah, when I did Henry's, I had to drive all the way to Brighton for that one. So um, now that <laughs> I know a long that... way from Middlesbrough. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a trek, but it was nice to be away again. And it was nice to see Henry. It's always nice to have a chat with Henry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now that I know this technology stuff works, I'll, I'll just sit around, just give me a call whenever you're bored. Brilliant, brilliant. So uh, that's that's an assurance that you'll be back. And the second one, then, I always ask of uh, any guest on the show is to deposit a book into the God's Own Scale Virtual Library, either on wargaming or military history. Um, 
if, if you want to put Jilly Cooper in there, that's fine. But I won't. I won't think any less of you. She's still about. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, she make of, with, with a hint of lead and a slight aroma of burnt end, yeah. There you go. You've got a future career there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have, have you got something for us? I did. I dug out. It was one of the first historical books I read. And this will probably sound quite embarrassing to some people because I think it was published in 2005. So this is the first crusade by Thomas Passbridge. And it was one of the first ones that I just, I don't know where, picked up on it. I think it was in the bookshop somewhere. And I went, oh, it sounds quite interesting. Uh, and I picked that up and, and that was the first one that first year historical military books that I got into. So I'm going to throw that one in. The First Crusade by Thomas Asbridge. Fantastic. Did it persuade you to become a war gamer, Leon? It didn't. <laughs> the no. games do. I, I do look at the games and I go, oh, right, I should really, this looks really fun. I, I, like, I, I do enjoy the painting. Uh, I like painting things. and uh, I've got a lot more books on, on the shelf these days than I used to. Uh, since that first one, uh, that's that's a. If there's the one thing war gamers like, uh, nearly as much as figures is books. <laughs> so, you're half a war gamer, let's say. Yeah, I think the next one. What's, what's next on the bedside cabinet? I've got the White Sniper about Seymour Hayha, right. the Finnish sniper from World War Two. Oh, and again, I don't know where I picked it up, but it appeared somewhere, and I went, like, "Yeah, that sounds interesting." Well, so it's, not, it's not really. I don't have a period or. Uh, a genre that I'll go for. I just I read the back, and if it sounds interesting, I'll give it a go. Well, talking about a Finnish sniper, that will have I said that right? Finnish sniper. <laughs> you can't say that too often, can you? Sniper, <laughs> Sean Connery sniper. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> uh, that that uh, makes it an appropriate time to say hello to Pear Broden, my. Uh, uh, long time compadre uh, through uh, Twitter and yes, other bits and pieces. I've been it's following been, his tweets, and Jesus, he does some nice work. He does do some nice work, um, yeah. and uh, hopefully, it's we'll too be small. Here. It's about forty percent too small, but it's, it's all right. <laughs> now, don't get sizes. <laughs> <laughs> We've well, actually, about. it's it, we haven't been touched on that, but six and ten, I find that we should be cooperative a bit more than maybe we are. Yeah, um, I think that the, the two skills sit perfectly happily side by side, uh, yes. and we should both be aiming up the ladder. Yeah, uh, the fifteen and the twenty-eight mil crowd. Yeah, yeah, try, yeah. To, try to convince them how, how to come down and, and, and dabble down here with, with the little men. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but um, when my daughter first went to school and was doing show and tells. Uh, she talked about Daddy playing with his little men in his office, <laughs> um, which brought a, a raised eyebrow when I went for parents' evenings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember going to school dressed in English Civil War gear because we were in the ECWS at the time. Wow. Um, so, yeah, when that topic came up at school, oh, we'll dress you up and send you in. <laughs> Thanks. But, yeah, I don't think I appreciate it. I look like you know, no, Bonnie Prince Charlie or something. <laughs> God. Uh, right, mate. I've, uh, I've I've said about an hour. It's it's been about an hour and a half, actually. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Time flies. We're having fun, doesn't it? It, it does. Uh, you'll have to send the invoice through to uh, my account, <laughs> and we'll we'll sort out the hourly rate. Mate, it, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thanks so much for giving up your time. Uh, uh, well done for everything uh, around the the mask production and 
uh, continued success. I wish you uh, for Pendragon going forward, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, once this COVID situation is resolved, we can uh, have a chat at uh, one of the first shows that we get back to. Ah, definitely. Thank you very much. This has been uh, wonderful, and yeah, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll see everyone again soon. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Leon. Although this is a six mil podcast, I do enjoy the odd look up or down the scales to cast some attention their way. And I hope you don't mind me indulging myself every now and then. Leon is a very personable chap and Pendraken are doing great things in the hobby. If 10 mil is your thing, then go and support them. Speaking of which, for my hobby update, as I type, I'm five days away from the start of my first venture into the Analog Painting Challenge, the annual challenge run by Kurt over in Canada, which hopes to focus the mind over a three-month period to get as much stuff painted as possible. I intend to be painting some 10 mil in Join the Challenge, in the form of uh, and Vietnam figures for Charlie Don't Surf. The Two Fat Lardies rule set has long held a fascination with me, so I'm really looking forward to plunging in with them. As well as those, I'll be finishing off the Antietam project. Sorry, Antietam project. I had hoped to be done by Christmas. Not sure that will happen, but certainly everything painted from the 21st of December, December onwards will be counted towards my challenge. And if there's time, I may get started on my Bacchus 6 mil Continental Army for Guildford Courthouse, as well as the odd 28 mil figure thrown in too. Now, following social media as I do on both Twitter and Facebook, I like to keep a tab on the current zeitgeist of the hobby, the mood, if you will. This year, it's been fantastic to see the almost universal positivity towards other gamers, the support people have given each other from across the globe and the general pleasantness, particularly on Twitter. However, one comment on Facebook this week has really riled me up. Uh, so this is a little bit of rant and I do apologise. I don't know why it's hit me so much. It wasn't aimed at me. Uh, I'm not affected in any other way than to be generally annoyed at what seemed a barbed and mean-spirited comment towards Bacchus. Now, I don't work for Bacchus. I have no relationship with them other than as a customer and the occasional badgerer of Peter to come and talk on the show. Peter is one of the gentlemen of this hobby. Like Leon, he is ever-present at his trade stand at shows, meeting and greeting and converting the masses to take a look at 6 mil. He is approachable over social media by email or phone call, and in my experience has always gone out of his way to meet the demands of the customer. 
The situation this year has been nothing short of terrible. Although demand has increased for toy soldiers, there are several companies that have found it difficult to meet demand due to COVID restrictions within the workplace or other government directives that have impacted on their ability to work effectively. When Peter last opened his cart, for example, he said he'd received something along the lines of a week's worth of orders for every hour that the shopping cart was open. That is just phenomenal demand in normal times, never mind in COVID when there are restrictions and a need to keep the workplace COVID safe and to look after your employees and do the right thing by them, as well as trying to keep your customers satisfied. Now, I think any right and fair-minded person can understand this. But for one person in particular on Facebook to call Bacchus shambolic and compare them to Tesco's, it's just not cricket. It's a bit like comparing chalk and cheese. To say that if Tesco couldn't get a product to you over an eight-month period, you'd feel the same way as not getting some toy soldiers the moment you click pay on a shopping cart shows to me no appreciation of the situation. No acknowledgement of the hard work Peter is doing to get orders out and to liken the purchase of toy soldiers to the basic essentials uh, for us to live by is putting far greater priority on toy soldiers than I think most of us would in normal circumstances. Now, I love my toy soldiers. They're a big part of my life, but I also recognise that they aren't essential to my life. If I didn't purchase another figure, I'd still have enough to keep me going for some considerable time. I suspect a fair portion of you listening to this are in the same boat, other than John and James, uh, previous guests on this show. Now, I am a passionate supporter of free speech. I would never look to censor somebody for their opinion. But I'll ask these questions to the person who posted those comments. Other than venting frustration at not getting your toys on time, what do comments like yours achieve? Will they get you your toys any quicker? How do you think the person they are aimed at is likely to feel on receiving them? Do you understand the working climate at Bacchus coping under COVID with skeleton staff and having just lost one of their uh, long-term members of staff due to illness? How do you think others will view the comments that you have made? And how much do you really need those figures that you're desperate for the next day, the next week or next month? Have you painted all of the last batch of figures that you ordered or are they still in the to-do pile? These are, of course, rhetorical questions. The answers don't really matter. But for me, the message is clear. I have a tenant of positivity and to play nice on this podcast. Not only play nice, but be nice. Turn that frown upside down. Smell the flowers along the journey that's called life. Enjoy yourself and look forward to a time when COVID is under control and people like Peter can once again push out mountains of lead 
to his eager customers by the hour. Now, my friend, I, I, I don't know what your personal situation is. You may have just had a bad day and felt like venting your frustration across social media and regretted it later. I don't know. But please, and this is a message for everybody, I'm myself included, put some perspective on what this hobby is. Acknowledge the work that businesses are doing to keep us supplied with our toys. And let's all look forward to better times in 2021. Until then, keep talking about six. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eyes. 